Okay, so crazy story. So across the street from us, like this couple started bringing out all the stuff onto the lawns and they're like, oh, we're getting rid of it. And we're like, oh, man, cool. Oh. So we got a couple things from them. And as I'm talking to them, they let us know that they just evicted um, this woman who had been living there for a while for a bunch of like infractions. And she had two kids, which, you know, oh. was a was a bummer for them. Seemed like nice people. And before I go any further, no one in this story is a good person. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let me guess. Let me guess. Is, did did the lady try to rent your room? You have? no, no, no. Okay. So okay. We, we have we haven't met the woman who was evicted. Okay. So okay. the couple, you know, they they tell us, and we're like, oh man, that sucks. And they even like bring me inside to show me something uh, to see if I want it. The house oh, okay. is fucking disgusting. Um, there's like grime. What, what's... Okay. Uh, just there's grime everywhere. Cigarette butts on the floor. Like parts of the floor are like chewed up. Um, it stinks really bad. Like probably I hoarders. Then, well, yeah. I don't know if they were hoarders, it, other, rather than just disgusting. Okay. Um, and she had two kids living in that kind of like filth. So it was yeah, pretty bad. Awesome. Like fucking boogers all over the walls and shit. Dude, it was like everything had a film on it. Yeah, like, I used to clean houses like that with yeah uh, in yeah. Wisconsin. Ugh. Like the couple things that we did get, I had to clean off, and then all the other furniture was just fucked. Yeah. So, so pretty shitty, you know, and people were like driving by the couple that evicted them and being like, you guys should be ashamed and stuff. And, and I'm like, well, maybe people just don't know the kind of squalor this woman was like forcing her kids to live in. And then somebody on Facebook mentions it and posts uh -oh. a news article about the couple who owned the house who evicted the woman. And essentially, the story was that they had like eight to ten kids, and the and the woman was also pregnant again, and they got a few of them taken away because they their kids were also living in a shit squalor house, and not only that, one of the infants died, and oh it was God. like said it was like malnutrition, um, was basically like living in its own shit stuff like that, oh um, and so they were doing court. For like, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what happened with the court thing because they're like up out and about. So Jesus. I have no idea. So wait. So, OK, so, so so the couple owns the house. They had a gajillion kids. One of their children dies. Yeah. Like, a, and like then an they had this renter that had the two kids that had to be around that shit. Well, had to be around because I mean, the the shittiness is separated. So, so they like, have their own house, but they're renting out this house. Exactly. So they own that house that they evicted the woman who the house was disgusting and her two kids lived in the disgusting house. So that's its own separate thing. The people who own it, who evicted them, that's the people with the 10 kids. A baby died. Um, a whole article written about them. That's Jesus. Like pretty shocking. Yeah. Gnarly. So met Small them. Drama. Yeah. <laughs> were they like did they have like a lazy eye that kind of wandered when you talked to them kind of Dude, thing and like shit in their pants like seemed like stupid? seemed like completely normal people that's crazy like I know we, it. we like before we mm -hmm. knew about that we met them and talked to them and i felt bad for them because you know like you walk into the house and it's so disgusting yeah and they have to you know they're just like oh we just got to clean this up and try to get it you know back they're, and you're just like they're Fuck, putting that on sucks. that show they're putting on that show for you to to make them seem better. I don't know, but yeah, 
Yikes, man. Crazy. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Jesus. I hope Lock you, your doors. Yeah. I, I hope <laughs> your neighborhood's okay. It's uh, it's okay. Somebody was murdered by the police down the street. Oh. But it was he started shooting at the cops first, so... <laughs> You know. That's okay. I mean, I'm sure here in Portland and in Denver, we probably that shit happens all the time. We've oh, I hear gunshots every night. Yeah, Aurora is getting oh, pretty man. bad. Oh man. Oh yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Like oh, since yeah. I live there, it's, it's probably gotten worse. I yeah, mean, Aurora's probably. always been a little rough and tumble. But... Yeah, Aurora's been sketchy for a long time, but it's yeah, it's it's definitely not gotten better. That's for damn sure. Dang. That sucks. That's <laughs> eh, all right. Well, dear Just... listeners, if you are uh, upset by any of this, this episode is not going to get any better. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, uh, yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. What are we talking Trust about? Tease. If it... dead children make you sad, oh, it's man. not going to get any God better. Damn it. <laughs> well, we do. How did you know? It's just a hunch. (laughs) Well, welcome to Under the Pendulum. I'm Chris, here with Heather. Hello. And Caitlin in Portland. Hello. Oh, so what are we talking about today? We are talking (laughs) about the Ludlow Massacre. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. I know it, and I can't remember. Okay. So we're talking about minors. Oh, (laughs) fuck a bees. See, that was terrible. (laughs) Fuck a bees. (laughs) We're talking about miners. But they're not like the cute, you know, gold rush miners. Oh, prospectors. Mm-hmm. God bless them. No, you. they're not the no. prospectors. Nope. Indentured slaves. <laughs> Indentured servants is a very good yeah. way to put it. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, at the turn of the 19th century, a massacre occurred in the old mining town of Ludlow. So strike breakers, along with the Colorado National Guard, killed over 20 men, women, and children who were striking against mine operators for better working and living conditions. So we'll get to the main story in a moment, but before we can tell that tale, it's important that we talk briefly about the circumstances leading up to the massacre. And funny thing is, I don't live very far away from where this happened. Yeah, I'm actually excited to come and see all these spots where this stuff happened because, man, was it a lot. Yeah, and there's still the memorial where it all happened, and um, there's a cool part of it that will... Well, it's not cool. It's tragic, but it's cool that they kept it, but I'll I'll save that. Yes. Um, Yeah, it's maybe a 20, 30-minute drive north of Trinidad, and Trinidad's actually a part of the story as well. Yeah, yeah, so I haven't visited the site yet, but I do want to go check it out. Yeah. I'd probably do a day trip up there. So coal miners faced many dangers due to the unsafe conditions and lack of oversight, but they also faced industrial exploitation to cut production costs and keep workers near the mines as indentured servants. Miners and their families often lived in little towns called company towns. Have you guys ever heard of company towns? No. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah, so these these towns were created to essentially control the lives and finances of the workers as the whole town is owned by the company. Right. Actually, right. I think fucking Palaka was one of those places or like a lots of places in Florida. I mean, like those like cinder block houses kind of thing. Yeah, so so you have like working like working towns or villages where they'll just put up 
the help or, or you know, the low, low wage workers. I don't know if Palaka is the same as a company town. Anyway, similar concepts. Well, in a way. So, so, you know, the company owns the town, but it's not just that they own the town. Workers, they live in company houses, they shop at company stores, and they even buy and drink alcohol at company saloons if they were not prohibited, which sometimes they were. Mm. But all personnel who worked in the town, like doctors, school teachers, law enforcement, and even priests, were all company employees. So you make the money and you give it right back to the company. That's exactly it. So wow. the towns and the towns are also gated a lot of times and guarded by armed personnel. Wow. So and as you guessed, <laughs> they are also employed by the coal mine company. That so, sounds problematic. Oh, it is very much so problematic. That sounds illegal. Yeah, I mean, a lot of miners, especially in, in this area, but I mean, all over the US, you know, they're usually immigrants from like Europe and Asia. Um, newly freed black slaves and Mexican migrants. Mm. So really, they often had little resources and recourse to fight against this system. I was reading that they actually would uh, send people into Eastern European countries and, and like Greece, and they would try to recruit the these people from these countries to come work for the mining company. And it was preferable that they all didn't speak the same language because there would be less uh, opportunity for the pot to be stirred. Yep. Actually, and that's that's so funny you mentioned yeah, that because that damn. is a big part of the story. Well, it's going to be a big part of the story. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned Greece because one of the main, one of the leaders of the Ludlow strike or the strike that happens in Ludlow is, is a immigrant from Greece. Uh, and there's actually yeah. a statue of him not too far away from here. Night. That's neat. That's sad, but he meets a very unfortunate end, though. Mm. So another thing about these towns is they were often near the mine or in remote locations. So this made it difficult for workers to leave. Besides it being guarded, they couldn't find other work, or they couldn't trade or buy from any outside or independent merchants. So they had to buy from the company stores. So, th so wait, did this mean that they didn't have actual like U.S. DA money and it was just that money. So many companies paid employees in what is basically company credit called scrip. And this money was only good at company stores. <laughs> and also so fucking horrible. <laughs> dude, so the, so they would also jack up the prices for goods. And so many workers became in debt to the company, which then they had to pay off before they could leave. So it's it always been Oceana. <laughs> Big Brother is watching. Man, I know. I just, I don't know. I feel like it's just like every time you hear just this litany of terrible things like oh, that, that like, you know, a workforce can do or working can do. It's just like envisioning yourself getting fucked in the ass by some like big, sweaty, fat piece of some shit. Big old big Rockefeller. Sweaty dick. Rockefeller. Yeah. Oh God. Just but like <laughs> held down too where you can't move. Just the <laughs> God. <laughs> I mean that's I don't know about you, but that's what I see. I mean that's it that's a good um analogy. Analogy for it, yeah. Yeah. I mean that's basically what they're doing, really. I mean these people are just it is basically slavery by another name. Mm -hmm, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Besides all that. 
There were also the safety concerns and the tragic loss of human life that miners had to face. So Ludlow, the massacre at Ludlow was one of the most sensational tragedies regarding the treatment of miners, but by far not the most deadly um, when it comes to this, you know, the working conditions. So the most deadly incident in Colorado happened near Trinidad in the Hastings mine just north of here, Trinidad, because you listener are somewhere else. The human cost of coal mining was vulgarly shown. On April 27th, 1917, as the story goes, a mine inspector named David H. Reese took off his helmet lamp to relight the flame while inside the mine. He struck Mm. a match, which triggered a massive explosion that ripped through the mine. 121 miners were killed in the blast. Most of them were Austrian, Greek, Black, Italian, Mexican, and Polish. Damn. 121 that's a lot yep yeah so they like be- one shot like just one little i mean whoopsie. probably mo- a lot of them might have died pretty quickly um you know it was hard to get to the bodies so you know maybe some languished for a bit um you know he said yeah. it was i'm sure he didn't survive but it, they say it was to relight his helmet but it was actually because he cut one and he didn't <laughs> want everybody to know <laughs> These, yeah. It's an old miner's trick. These <laughs> damn Greeks are going to laugh at me. <laughs> yeah, oh, I mean, not again. I can't <laughs> handle it today. <laughs> in, in one of our previous episodes uh, where we talk about Massachusetts hauntings, um, one of the stories was about the Hoosick Tunnel. And I think the Hoosick Tunnel took around 40 or 50 years to finish. And in that time, 135 people died. Mm-hmm. Verified over- deaths. That's over wow. that many years. Yeah, so, so one one twenty is a lot to knock out with one. Oh yeah, one. dude, and, that, and that's not even the the greatest um, tragedy in U.S. mining history. I'll get to okay. that later. Okay. So <laughs> I'll get to that later. <laughs> no, I was just thinking of another term for a part with like a toot from the poot cannon. <laughs> <laughs> I like this, it. <laughs> the explosion was the ultimate oh, toot from the poop cannon. That's my new mining name is uh, Poot Buchanan. <laughs> <laughs> poot meant something different back in those days. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> toot Poot Cannon. <laughs> so they believe it was the inspector's incompetence because they did find his body, which was relatively untouched by the explosion. Hmm. And they found a number of matches and a tin of tobacco. So, but, but what's like shocking about this is that the matches, that matches in general are strictly forbidden in volatile mines like Hastings. That and what's like even worse. A, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sounds like a managerial, uh, Activity to me thinks he's Dude, above the law. What like what's even worse is that part of his job was to search miners for matches before entering the mine. He just had that Prince Albert in a can, and he <laughs> needed to let that poor guy out. <laughs> Nobody ever lets him out. <sighs> you okay in there? So um, recovering the bodies was a slow process, and many of the family members of the deceased showed up to the mine when they heard the news to see if their family member was one of the dead. 
So newspapers covered the shock and grief of those who lost loved ones. The Montrose Daily Press wrote, quote, Up the snow-clad hill trudged at intervals through the day a long line of figures, mourning women whose hearts the spark of hope had died. The wife and daughter of a Mexican miner sat nearly motionless outside the mine for hours, peering into the blackness, their faces twisted with the fear and the longing and the sadness that shone in their big, liquid brown eyes. Unquote. Can you imagine how fucked they must have felt? Not only despair, but like just knowing the long road ahead of how fucked they were. Yeah, God. I mean, yeah, they're, your family's dragged out there. You know, because you're, because yeah. the head got the head of the household got the job at the mine, and yeah. now you're like, Ugh. you know, possibly in debt to the to the company <laughs> if you lived in the company town. I just want to say thank you. I mean, I thought I had a bad time today at my job today, but uh, just just remembering how yeah. bad some jobs can be. <laughs> so how bad some stitches can be. So yeah, it's like if you somebody yells at you someday, it's like, yeah, it could be worse. Yeah. So though the Hastings mine explosion was a few years after the Ludlow massacre, it highlights the dangerous conditions and lack of safety precautions that miners had faced for decades. Explosions and other fatal accidents were grossly common during this period. And many common accidents that resulted in death were from falling rocks, falls of coal, Mine shaft collapses and floods, accidents from mine cars and motors, and of course explosions. And then there were also the long-term consequences of working the mines for an extended period of time. Even after the Ludlow Massacre, little gains were made in improving the lives and working conditions for laborers. They often still worked 12-hour days, six days a week, inhaled coal dust and other gases, which you know would ultimately lead to premature deaths or deadly illnesses. I mean, so these people had to do this all themselves, right? They had to dig the holes to put the explosives in. They had to raise the ceiling as they were going in. Mm -hmm. They had to lay the tracks to put their carts. But they were only paid for the amount of coal that they could yield. So imagine you are working all this time. You work seven straight days just on fucking setup. And you only get paid for the coal that you yield. So you work mm-hmm. like weeks out of the year with no pay because you're setting up to hopefully get that coal. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, and then if they really if they get you with a company township where you're in debt, then you're really fucked because then they, yeah. they they have you. You know, it's yeah, it's just oh, man. Yeah. It's, and it's I, horrible. And I, heard, <laughs> I heard like even if you had like maybe say a couple little rocks in your load of coal. They would say, oh, well, there's rocks in this coal. We can't we can't pay you for this. But, you know, on the pile of coal it goes. They're still making money off of it. They're just fucking you every single way they can. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, awful. and you'd have you'd have shady people weighing, you know, doing the weights and stuff like that. Yeah. Work for the company. Um, mm. And then, you know, and I, I don't even talk about it in this episode. But then keep in mind, there are like children. Yeah. Working in some mines. Yep. Now we can kind of get to the Ludlow Massacre. So from 1913 to 1914, Colorado miners went on strike for better conditions and quality of life. For 14 months, strikers lived in makeshift tent colonies around the Colorado Prairie. 
The centers for the strikes were in Los Animas and Huerfano counties in, southern, in the southern coal fields of Colorado. The coal that was mined here became the supply for high-grade bituminous coal, which was used in the steel industry to produce coking coal, which is, which is a, a metallurgical coal, which is the main source of carbon in steel making. So all this is important because, yeah. you know, the railways, the railways are expanding in the West and at a very fast rate. So they're really ramping up production for this coal, especially out West, to keep up with this demand to create more railway. Yeah. And so the largest operation was the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, which was bought by our old friend John D. Rockefeller, baby, in 1903. <laughs> Got a piece of shit, dude. Uh, <laughs> fucking <laughs> Rockefeller. He's a criminal. <laughs> no, but he's such a humanitarian, right? Uh, yeah, Look at it's, all his it's, charitable endeavors. Yeah, it's so funny how oh. how, how how this story kind of ends for him. I mean, he doesn't really get any bad repercussions, but he does get not. kind of a a little bit of a humbling. He's the rich and famous, darling. Mm -hmm. Of course he won't. It's like a mosquito <laughs> bite or something. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's totally fine. So after this acquisition, CF and I wielded a great deal of political clout, particularly in southern Colorado. This clout allowed the mines to operate at low standards of safety with little accountability from the operators. Colorado was second only to Utah in having the most dangerous mines at this time. Miners in these two states died at more than twice the nat national average. Jesus. In many of the cases of deaths that were examined, the company picked the coroners who often absolved the companies of any wrongdoing in the deaths. Boy, this is sounding a lot like uh, radium bullshit, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It is, but it really highlights how like deep, you know, I mean, and we see it now. I mean, it's, it's how deep corporations and certain, you know, I mean, essentially wealthy people how influence. like far their tendrils are like in the system sometimes. Yep. Yeah. So as mentioned before, most miners were immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, and it's estimated that around 24 different languages were spoken in the camps and mines, which suited the company just fine as it was difficult for the miners to organize and maintain solidarity when strikes did occur. Yep. So companies would even go as far as to blame any violence from the strikes on certain immigrant immigrant groups, like Greek or Balkan immigrants, kind of basically being like, it's their culture to be violent un and unruly. It's just like those, you know, it's just, it's it's racism, xenophobia kind of shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know those Greeks, they just <laughs> love to kill. Just making up I mean, stereotypes. Wrestling. Yeah, they, oh, yeah, they <laughs> wrestle. He's taking off his clothes and trying to wrestle me. That's right. A Saint Sponge <laughs> diving, my friend. I mean, wasn't didn't Greece come off of a a battle for independence recently yeah. before all this? Yeah, I mean, Against we talked a... about um, we talked about that in the um, uh, Mary Shelley, where oh yes, yeah, it was kind of in the mid eighteen hundreds, I believe, and uh, Lord Byron actually went to go fight. In that um, it was That's a revolution. Right. That's right. So the United Mine Workers of America, UMWA, tried their best to help mining communities to organize strikes. They, they were the union. Miners with attitude. 
That's right. Sorry. That's right. <laughs> I was going to try to come up with a funny rap, but it just isn't going to work out. <laughs> Wait, is it straight out of Kantianism? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Straight out of Hades. Straight out of... Summon and snakes. Summon and snakes. <laughs> So in 1903, UMWA helped lead strikes in the Colorado coal fields. In the North, it was somewhat successful, but it failed miserably in the South. I mean, they both fail, but the North at least got a little bit of um, give from the companies. Yeah. About a decade later, the UMWA organized another strike in the South, announcing to the mine operators that they had seven demands. One, recognition of the union. Two, a 10% increase in wages on the tonnage rates. And like we just talked about, they were paid by the ton of coal that they mined, not by the hour. They also wanted an eight-hour workday. Payment for dead work. And this is what Heather just brought up earlier. Since miners were only paid for the coal they mined, work such as, work such as uh, shoring, timbering, and laying track was not paid. But they were all expected to still do it. So they also wanted the right to elect their own check weighman. Miners often suspected, uh, generally with good reason, that they were being cheated at the scales that weighed their coal. And they wanted a miner that they elected to check the scales. It's reasonable. Yep. Uh, six, they wanted the right to trade in any store to choose their own boarding places and to choose their own doctors. You know, I mean, a lot of it's just really normal autonomy that like and any normal rights. person... Yeah, that any person should have. Ooh, human rights. I don't know about that. <laughs> you're going to have to talk to HR about that HR. Yeah, oh, your there property is no HR. I. <laughs> I am HR. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, number seven, lastly, they wanted the enforcement of Colorado mining laws and abolition of the company guard system. It's crazy so, that there were fucking laws in place in Colorado during all of this. They had fucking laws. Yeah, but, you know, with that much clout that Rockefeller had, I mean, mm-hmm. a few payoffs and, and yep. you know, and, and honestly, the Colorado government is not going to help the situation that's coming no. up. Real management uh, material right there. So of all of these um, demands, recognition of the union was one of the most important, as the union was trying to provide some semblance of sucker and empathy in what amounted to indentured servitude. And recognition of the union would also give miners some advantages in the negotiation table. So once the strike got going, around 90% of the workforce struck. As a result, workers were evicted from the company towns and their homes. So the miners and their families packed up their belongings and headed to tent sites that the UMWA had set up in advance. They also set up the, um, uh, the, the strikers with ovens and some supplies. So they really tried to, like, you know, keep them there as long as they could. And the idea to keep them there was that they wanted to cover the entrances to the canyons and the mines to intercept strike breakers. Do you uh, mention Mother Jones at all? No, I don't. Yeah. So Mother Jones was basically a champion for for uh, labor laws. Um, did you read about her at all? No, she actually um, didn't really come up in my because um, I, I was really just reading about really kind of like what was going massacre. on in Colorado. 
Yeah, well, she kind of kept all, like all this shit going on kind of in the forefront of the press. Um, she claimed to be like 80 years old, but she was really like in her early 70s. And she was just kind of in the front of the picket lines with them. She was doing parades down the street and shit with these workers, like trying to to tell them, you know, if you band together, if you stay strong, things will fucking change. So she really kind of brought this to the forefront of the mind of of the country just with her coverage and and the way she had been championing for other kind of labor laws before that. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I wonder if she was a part of this because, you know, the whole Ludlow massacre really becomes this. Yeah, I wonder if she had somebody that she knew in there or something like that. I mean, she might, she might have. have just been for the like labor laws in general. Um, yeah, that's what know. it sounded like. I, mean, I only heard a little bit about her, but she was brought up quite a bit. And I believe her name was mm. Mother Jones. She was an Irish immigrant. Yeah, she was just this like loud and colorful woman who was just trying to like tell the people to rise up, man, rise up, fight for your rights. <laughs> She's pretty cool. Yeah, no, that's awesome. <laughs> I'll have to read about her because I mean, Ludlow yeah. becomes sort of a focal point for awakening the American consciousness to like the, the realities of what was happening. Yeah, you know, and there's and, photos uh, of her with a sign marching through the streets of Trinidad. Oh, cool. I will have yeah. to look that. That's sick as hell, yeah. dude. That's awesome. Yeah, she she I didn't see her come up in my in my research, but yeah. you know. But I'm sure there's other um pieces written by some people who might oh, mention for sure. her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Ludlow became one of the largest tent colonies, housing twelve hundred miners and their families in over two hundred tents. So we need to talk a little little bit about strike breaking. So strike breakers, they're sometimes known as scabs, and they're essentially people who are employed in place of the strikers. Oh, yeah. So, I hear scabs a lot with all the oh, yeah. unions and film and stuff like that. I heard yeah. that quite a bit around the pandemic. Yeah, it's um, you know, universally hated by unions. Um, That's a gross fucking name, too. Good job. Yeah, it's, Might it's, as well it's, be toys. Yeah. it's supposed to be demeaning, right? It's, you mm -hmm. know, um. But the point of them is to ensure that the work continues and it also kind of weakens the effectiveness of the strikes because, you know, production's not stopping. So right. your striking's meaningless. Yeah. <laughs> so strike breakers could also be people who were employed to break up strikes using violence and intimidation. And they were also known as union busters or goon squads. Oh, fun. We are the goon squads and we're coming to town. <laughs> Look, I got my hammer, bro. Smack, smack, smack. <laughs> <laughs> so there were even detective agencies like the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency who specialized in bussing up union strikes. Detective agencies used to be quite different. Wow, yeah. crazy. <laughs> or maybe not. I don't know. I don't detective. know much about Detective. Uh, yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> Air quotes. <laughs> yeah. So operators in Southern Colorado used Baldwin and Feltz to break up the Southern Colorado strikes. And the tactic was to intimidate and harass the strikers and their families in the hopes that they would just crumble under the pressure or even react violently to justify the use of force. So it was almost they, they would hope that the people would almost like start being violent with them because they'd be like, oh, look, yeah. see, you see these unruly immigrants? 
I could just imagine trying to like find a screwdriver at that agency, like, and every toolbox just has like a bat with barbed wire on it or like a broken <laughs> bottle. And like, just like, are there any actual tools in here? <laughs> Does anybody have a Phillips head? <laughs> do you talk about the death special? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, I do talk about yeah. the death Delicious. special. Actually. <laughs> so <laughs> here is how Walker and Walker is one of my sources for this episode. It's actually one of my main sources. Okay. Um, I'll uh, share the source uh, citations at the end. So here's how Walker describes the campaign of terror. Quote, The harassment took the form of high-powered searchlights playing over the colonies at night, murders, beatings, and the use of the death special, an improvised armored car that would periodically spray selected colonies with machine gun fire. The purpose of this harassment was to goad the strikers into violent action, which would provide a pretext for the Colorado governor to call out the National Guard, thus shifting a a considerable financial burden from the operators to the state. Amid the steadily escalating violence in the coal fields and pressure from the operators, Governor Amans duly called out the National Guard, which arrived in the coal fields in October of 1913. Man, the death special sounds like a burger you'd get out here for 15 bucks (laughs) at a bar. (laughs) Yeah, it's the Jesus. it's at the heart attack uh, cafe in Vegas. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, that's rough though. That's a that's a rough one. There's yeah. an actual fucking scale outside that restaurant. By the way, if you were curious, you can step on the scale. Do you sh- actually? like change weight when you eat a bunch of food i'm sure you do a little bit <laughs> no I, I mean well if you weigh over a certain amount you get your meal for free that's disgusting i mean you're, you're gonna weigh if you eat two pounds of food i mean yeah you're, gonna, weigh two you're, pounds go, you're gonna have to be two pounds heavier yeah so how much wonder, do you have to weigh oh yeah how much do you have to weigh to get a free meal i think over 350 Whew. Yeah. Oh, well, God bless your heart for getting out to Vegas if you're, <laughs> I don't know, perhaps you're already living in Vegas. I don't know if that's that's the actual number, but that's what's popping up in my mind. It's it's something pretty up there. I've yeah. been eating all my life for this moment. <laughs> so the commander of the militia was General Chase, who had dealt with strikers in the Cripple Creek strike of 1904. Chase declared unofficial martial law, which included... Quote, the suspension of habeas corpus, mass jailings of strikers, a cavalry charge on a demonstration by minors, wives, and children, the torture and beating of prisoners, and the demolition of one of the tent colonies at Forbes, unquote. So he fucking sent a cavalry out to add a bunch of women and children. Yeah, I feel like that's happened a shit ton of times in like U.S. history. I mean, I, I, like, what is it? The uh, massacre at Sand Creek comes to mind. Oh, this! Like, oh, I I definitely want to do a Sand Creek massacre episode. That shit was crazy, but it's they did horrible. the same thing where it's just like they did it to the women and children, and it really oh wasn't yeah, I mean, and that that's when and we they do were do. asked not to do it too. Yeah, when we do that episode, it, that's going to be a really rough one because there's yeah. a few primary sources that are it's fucking brutal. Ugh. Yeah, uh, sad. Yeah, I don't want to give it anything away because I I do have that in our. Spoiler um, alert. In our list, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but keep that in the back of your mind, listener. Mm. 
So General Chase was ruthless in how he dealt with the strikers, and the operators were more than happy to take whatever measures necessary to end the strikes and the publicity. So in the case of Ludlow, 659 enlisted men and 397 officers were sent to Ludlow. But after the cost of supporting this many troops became too costly, all but two companies were left after six months. And events came to a head on April 20th, 1914. So the day after the miners at Ludlow had celebrated Greek Easter, at about 9 a.m., gunfire broke out at that colony. So I'm going to quote from... Um, Damn it. Walker. <laughs> Walters. Um, Walters. By the way, you guys, I'm so sorry if you hear my neighbors that are all so loud. I can't As, hear. I can hear them right now in my headphones. Oh. So I wasn't sure if you could hear them. Okay. They're well, like they're like the worst alcoholics I've ever Oh, that sucks, dude. That's okay. It's just they're very loud. <laughs> we had we had some of those at the Savoy. Like they were just yeah. fucking yeah. yell at each other at like eight in the morning. Every single day they're yelling at each other. It's crazy. And then just divorce him. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to quote from Walker again on what happens next. So quote, the exact circumstances are uncertain. Those miners who were armed, how many isn't known, took positions in a railroad cut and in prepared foxholes to draw fire away from the colony. The militia sprayed the tent colony with machine gun fire and rifle fire. By the end of the day, the force facing the miners consisted of 177 militia, including two machine guns. In the evening, the arrival of a train between the militia and tent colony permitted most of the people to escape. But by 7 p.m., the tent colony was in flames and was being looted by the militia. The leader of the colony, Louis Ticus, was captured by the militia and summarily executed along with two other miners. And here is an eyewitness account of the execution and massacre from a young electrical engineer named Godfrey Irwin, who was traveling with a friend through the area and found themselves in the middle of the battle. Fuck. Take it away. On the day of the Ludlow battle, a chum and myself left the house of the Reverend J.O. Ferris, the Episcopal minister with whom I boarded in Trinidad, for a long tramp through the hills. We walked 14 miles, intending to take the Colorado and Southern Railway back to Trinidad from Ludlow Station. We were going down a trail on the mountainside above the tent city at Ludlow when my chum pulled my sleeve and, at the same instant, we heard shooting. The militia were coming out of Hastings Canyon and firing as they came. We lay flat behind a rock and after a few minutes I raised my hat aloft on a stick. Instantly, bullets came in our direction. One penetrated my hat. The militiamen must have been watching the hillside through glasses and thought my old hat betrayed the whereabouts of a sharpshooter of the miners. Then came the killing of Louis Ticas, the Greek leader of the strikers. We saw the militiamen parlay outside the tent city and, a few minutes later, Ticas came out to meet them. We watched them talking. Suddenly, an officer raised his rifle, gripping the barrel, and felled Ticus with the butt. Ticus fell face downward. As he lay there, we saw the militiamen fall back. Then they aimed their rifles and deliberately fired them into the unconscious man's body. It was the first murder I had ever seen, for it was a murder and nothing less. 
Then the miners ran about in the tent colony and women and children scuttled for safety in the pits which afterward trapped them. We watched from our rock shelter while the militia dragged up their machine guns and poured a murderous fire into the Arroyo from a height by Water Tank Hill above the Ludlow Depot. Then came the firing of the tents. I am positive that by no possible chance could they have been set ablaze accidentally. The militiamen were thick about the northwest corner of the colony where the fire started, and we could see distinctly from our lofty observation place what looked like a blazing torch waved in the midst of a militia a few seconds before the general conflagration swept through the place. What followed? Everybody knows. Sickened by what we had seen, we took a freight back to Trinidad. The town buzzed with indignation. To explain in large part the sympathies of even the best people in the section with the miners, it must be said that there is good evidence that many of the so-called militiamen are only gunmen and thugs, wearing the uniform to give them a show of authority. They are the toughest lot I have ever seen. No one can legally enlist in the Colorado State Militia till he has been a year in the state, and many of the militia admitted to me they had been drafted in by a Denver detective agency. Lieutenant Linderfelt boasted that he was going to lick the miners or wipe them off the earth. In Trinidad, the miners never gave any trouble. It was not till the militia came into town that the trouble began. Yeah, that's... um. You know, and, and the end there really highlights the sort of animosity that, you know, I mean, both sides had, but, it, you know, yeah. it always seems very unjustified that, you know, the strike breakers and things would have that kind of animosity. But yeah. there's a lot that goes with it, right? It's complicated. Like, we're, we're doing a lot of broad strokes, but very complicated issue. You know, there's also racism, xenophobia, all these things that come into play of why there would be a lot of cruelty between... Yeah you know, from, from those sides. For sure. So casualty figures vary, sometimes wildly, but a good estimate is 25 fatalities by the end of the day, including three militiamen, one uninvolved passerby, and 12 children. During the, um, and there's, yeah, and those are just some of the people included, you know, a lot of yeah. the miners and some women died. So during the battle, four women and 11 children took refuge in a pit dug beneath a tent. So all but two, Mary Petrucci and Alcarita Petragon, suffocated when the tent above them was burned. The dead included Petrucci's three children and Petragon's two children. The pit has been preserved and is now known as the Death Pit. So yeah. they actually still have it, so you can actually go um, That's crazy. see it. Yeah. Yeah, they would so, build these pits under their tents to kind of store their items and also to double as a, a shelter from all these attacks. Yeah, but it's just, yeah, I mean, it's such a horrible way um, to go. I mean, it's just this yeah, burning just canvas. Yeah, just suffocating. Yeah, and then just, you know, probably burning as well. Oh, yeah. 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 So the events at Ludlow spread on. And for 10 days, striking miners and other colonies went to war with the mines, attacking and destroying them, fighting battles with mine guards and militias along, a 40, along the 40 miles from Trinidad to Walsenburg. 
And this would become known as the Colorado Coalfield Wars. How long did this go on? You said 20 days? It was for 10 days after this. Oh. Yeah. So it's like this happens and then shit just fucking pops off. Yeah. People yeah. are like, what the fuck? Yeah. It, yeah. It, 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 this is like where it gets crazy. Yeah. And this hits the media too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah, okay. that, it's, it's, it becomes a pivotal point. In... Here's a controversial question. Do you think if that was going on now, so many people would be outraged and try to help? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think they would, yeah. but you know, it's also, I feel like people lose interest in things if they go on too long nowadays. It's sure. like our attention spans. Maybe it's always been this way. You know, it's yeah. hard to say, like mm-hmm. in the far past, but you know, it seems like our attention spans are like, like uh, the war in Ukraine is <laughs> a really good example, right? Or all the mass shootings. Yeah, yeah. The fighting ceased when the desperate governor of Colorado asked for federal intervention. After Ludlow and the 10-day war, the strike dragged on for another seven months, ending in defeat for the UMWA in December of 1914. So arrests followed after the smoke cleared, and 408 miners were arrested. 33 were indicted for murder, but not much came of these as Rockefeller used his influence to quash many of the trials. After news hit the public of the death of the women and children in the death pit, outcry had put Rockefeller in the hot seat. He was lambasted in the press and had to appear in a series of public hearings before the Commission on Industrial Relations. 22 enlisted men were court-martialed for their actions at Ludlow, but were ultimately exonerated. Mm. So, though change would come slowly, Ludlow would become a kind of symbol for the fight for rights. A memorial was proposed for the site not long after the event, as the UMWA did not want the incident to fall into obscurity over time. But many people outside of Colorado, or without a familiarity with labor history, probably don't remember or know Ludlow. But its importance in shifting the public awareness of the atrocious conditions and treatment of minors it it just can't be understated. Yeah. You know, like we've been talking about it, you know, it, it's it's it highlights the stark class divisions and it kind of breaks these illusions that people might have had. You know, one kind of myth, myth that was propagated by politicians and mine operators at the time and and just by people in general was that America was a classless country and that, you know, the relationship between the operators and laborers was really like an industrial partnership rather than essentially slavery. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this also when we, another ghost story episode, Alabama ghosts, when, you know, you're talking about the the uh, the steel mines, was it? Or what, what? I don't remember what they were mining down there. But um, kind of the same situation, just taking advantage of freed slaves and, um, and immigrants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same I mean, fucking shit. And well, and like you had brought up earlier, how you know they would sometimes go to these countries and places and try to enlist people to come back. It is with these sort of myths, right? It's like, oh, America's a paradise. It's the land of opportunity. Um, it's a classless country, so don't worry about you know any of the class struggles that you've been going through. Yeah, it, it, you know it's just all bullshit. But it, but it was even propagated the to the American people. Yeah, exactly. So if the union strike was defeated, what good came out of it all? Well, the changes would come slow, too slow, but they would come. 
Rockefeller had to engage with the miners on a more personal level to try and repair the damage to his image. Um, like, like you had mentioned, Heather, this really hit the press hard, especially mm-hmm. the women and children thing. It, it, it really, um, it was a humbling experience for Rockefeller in some ways because he had to really like do a lot of, uh, damage control and, yeah. and, you know, use the media that, to help him do that. Exactly. Yeah. So this did result in how corporations and employees interacted. And Ludlow, in many ways, became the pivotal point in discussions and relations and would plant the seeds for future change. Again, changes wouldn't happen right away. I mean, not really until the New Deal. But changes would include more safety regulations, an eight-hour workday, and the banning of child labor, among, you know, other things. Yeah. So these changes have resulted in better work conditions, but working in mines is still an incredibly dangerous industry, though casualties have been lowered significantly. For instance, the worst mining accident in U.S. history occurred in a West Virginia mine in 1907. An explosion killed 362 miners. (laughs) In 2020, less than 30 miners died total in the U.S. Damn. Wow. Holy fuck. Yeah. That is the Ludlow Massacre and just horrible mining conditions of the turn of the century. Yeah. And I, I don't think we're probably done with the the topic of mining yet. I think it's oh, going to no. keep coming. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there yep. are more harrowing stories. And, you know, and this one's interesting in that way because, I mean, the the conditions and, and especially at this time are so atrocious and, and just the stories are harrowing. Yeah. You know, but this is definitely where we get it, it, this one's interesting because it's a massacre, you know, of, yes. of people. And there's debate. Some academics want to debate that, but I feel like it's mm, pretty pretty no. cut and dry. Again, <laughs> yeah. it is a very complicated issue, but I feel like that's... But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it happens in other examples with similar situations. I mean, come on, guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Uh, That's did dark. that make your day better, Kate? I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it made my day better seeing you two, though. Oh, yeah. Glad you weren't killed in a mine. Me too. <laughs> you too, you guys. I mean, you're in Colorado. Yeah. Huh? I ain't going into an abandoned mine shaft anytime soon. That's for oh, goddamn no. sure. Man, I feel like those days of past for me but it's still on the table it sounds fun but now I that i know that these people are it being, was just kind of a fly by the seat of your pants operation yeah, just fucking being going crushed, yeah being no. crushed to death doesn't sound so great huh no no, no thank you uh, it's fucking tedious <sighs> smushy smushy nobody wants that no <laughs> uh well i guess before we get to socials um one announcement is that we are actually going to be going down to one episode a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll be releasing episodes <laughs> at the end of each month. And this is really just to make better content for all of you. Um, yes, yes. Spend... It's not, it's not, uh, it's quantity, not you. It's quality. It's, it's not us. you. It's me. It's us. Quality. <laughs> quality, quantity. No, we, we all work full-time jobs and, um, you know, and we want to make sure that we get you guys the best content that we can make. And, you know, since this isn't our full-time job, we got to put in a little more time on our, our on our end. Yep. But 
It's mm-hmm. going to make for much better episodes. Yep. Darn mm-hmm. tootin'. Instead of the uh, the old uh, turning in your paper the the day, the morning of, you know. Yep. We've had a couple keep... a couple episodes like that. <laughs> Man, I, keep, I still have nightmares about that all the time. That I just like, it's always oh, that yeah. I didn't pass one class, you know, I didn't to have study. my for the test or I didn't finish my project. Yeah. Yes. I hate those fucking dreams. And you're the laughing stock of the school. And my <laughs> pants are down for some reason. Yep. Everybody's <laughs> laughing at this penis that I all of a sudden have. <laughs> <laughs> and they keep talking about my little wiener. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a big dunce hat on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is cold. also just a big wiener. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can follow us on Facebook at Under the Pendulum Podcast, on Instagram at Under Pendulum Podcast, on Twitter at Pendulum underscore pod, on TikTok at Under the Pendulum. And you can find all our episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, the iHeartRadio app, or almost anywhere else you listen to your pods. And you can find me, Heather, on Facebook, Heather Thomas, Instagram, h.n.thomas, Twitter at Heather W. Thomas. And you can hear my narrations on Creepy, Tales to Terrify, The Wicked Library, and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Nice. And you can find me at LemonParty.com. <laughs> and you can find me <laughs> on Instagram at FrothyStarDog. <laughs> and uh, you can find me on Instagram by searching for uh, Christopher Weber 13 v and Facebook for just looking up Christopher Weber. Yeah, Good baby. Luck. No, not yeah. much there. Not much there. <laughs> Well, thank you for listening, everyone, and we will see you next time. Good night. Good night. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>